Hey, Rachel, how long was Dazzler an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D.? <laughs> like two days before Mystique kidnapped and replaced her. Why? Well, it always just seemed like a weird fit to me. I mean, she's not exactly a team player or an establishment type. Yeah, but she likes being one of the cool kids, and I guess her stint dimension hopping left her with a taste for action. Dimension hopping? Yeah, in Extreme X-Men. She was the leader of an exile-style group tasked with tracking down and killing ten evil versions of Charles Xavier. That's very Scott Pilgrim. You know, it's been a while since I've read that series, but I'm pretty sure Scott Pilgrim never actually had to fight a cyborg Wild West Sheriff Cyclops. True. Anyway, the point is, there is more to Dazzler than meets the eye. Are you implying that she's a robot in disguise? Not that I know of, but with LMDs, you can really never be too careful. Well, robots aside, Dazzler's always struck me as a pretty straightforward character. I mean, she's basically got one major recurring plotline, her tug of war with the music industry, and her powers have pretty much stayed the same from the start. What? No, they haven't. What do you mean? She can transmute sound into light. That's her thing. That's always been her thing. Well, there is that, but there were also the few years when she was just straight up immortal. What?! Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 80 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So this time, we are going to talk about a couple of annuals, specifically the ones from 1987 for X-Men and New Mutants, specifically, respectively, number 11 and number 3. Both of these are once again drawn by Alan Davis, whom we've been seeing popping up lately in a lot of annuals. One of them also features a guest appearance by Captain Britain. I feel like at this point, Excalibur launching is just going to be the most natural thing in the world. Yeah, yeah, it's like we've been holding the sneeze for all this time, and it's going to be super satisfying. We're going to sneeze everywhere, and it'll be amazingly British. Okay. Hey, it works in my head. It's worth pointing out, too, that the issues we're looking at today came out concurrent to an X-Factor annual, which we're not going to be covering today. We're going to be rolling that into coverage of some surrounding X-Factor stories. Now, as far as when these guys take place, the X-Men and New Mutants annuals, they're actually a little bit before where our coverage currently is. So for Uncanny X-Men annual number 11, that takes place right after Havoc joins the team, but right before all the stuff with Storm and Naze and San Francisco and all that apocalyptic doom and gloom. And the New Mutants story takes place right after the New Mutants get back from space before Karma quits during the Hellfire story. So let's go ahead and do a brief lineup recap. So who is on the X-Men right now? Good question. So we've got the sort of hybrid team that came out of the Mutant Massacre. We've got Storm and Wolverine kind of at the center. We have Rogue, who's also been on the team for a while, and Dazzler, who's been associated with the X-Men, but is only recently a full member. The new kids are Longshot, who materialized marvelously out of a different annual. Havoc, who has recently rejoined the X-Men after a f- yet another failed attempt to finish his dissertation. And we have Psylocke, who is from Captain Britain. Once again, we have lots of British stuff crossing over, but who's now been on the X-Men for a little while. And let's actually hold off on the New Mutants lineup until we get to that issue. So I guess right on to Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 11, Lost in the Funhouse, not surprisingly featuring Arcade. So guys, this is a really weird issue. Like, I had to read this issue a couple of times before I could even have an opinion on it. It's that weird. I'm still not entirely sure I have an opinion on it. Like, I've been trying to have feelings about this issue other than just sort of, huh, so that happened. But we do have some really cool character moments. So we have some amazingly, terribly awesome villain design. We've got Cosmic Wolverine. We do have Cosmic Wolverine. Oh, and we have the source of the worst Wolverine power thing ever. Yeah. So, if you will all bear with us through some true bizarreness, we will tell you about these things and many more. 
The issue actually opens with Wolverine staggering home drunk to the X-Mansion, singing this weird song, and I looked this up, and it's actually from a play, specifically a play called The Hostage from 1958 by Brendan Behan, which is about an Irish Republican army member being executed, in which different characters all represent different types of Irish nationalism. We've kind of moved on from Larry Niven in terms of the deep-cut allusions here. I just kind of wonder where Wolverine came in contact with this presumably fairly obscure play. Like, he's did, a cultured he... dude. I mean, we've seen him going to the ballet. We know he's a fairly accomplished polyglot. Why wouldn't he know this play? I guess it's true. He's been around for a long time. So, you know, you can't spend all of that time murdering ninjas. I also feel like really bleak political allegories would be Wolverine's theatrical jam pretty hard. I guess that's true. I like him having these complex opinions. And he's got like a half written thesis for a college degree he never finished all about like, I don't know, Norman Mailer or something. No, he just leaves and he gets really pissed off and grumbles. Well, I don't really like that. That's true, yeah, because he's been there for that's all there. that historical stuff. Goes to the play version of Homage to Catalonia and just falls asleep halfway through because apparently that's just what one does. <laughs> so anyway, Wolverine's theatrical proclivities aside, yeah, he is staggering back to the mansion drunk. And this is interesting because, you know, Wolverine can't get drunk any more than cigars actually affect his lungs, which we've whoa, whoa, read about whoa. before. Wolverine can get drunk. We can get drunk briefly. Only We've if he... seen him get drunk. He popped his claws through the palms of his hands. It was really graphic. Oh, there was that one issue. That's true. Yeah, in the Wolverines. It was a flashback. Yep. With Fang. You guys remember Fang, right? Everyone loves Fang. So the X-Men sort of stumble out of bed in their bathrobes and whatnot to confront him being a sloppy cowboy-hatted drunkard. And he actually does point out that, hey, you know, I have to drink really hardcore to even get to this point, and I'm now acting drunker than I actually am, which I think is something I actually do. It is definitely something you actually do. Well, it's fun. You know, you have a good excuse. And so the X-Men are all out here, but who's also here are a couple of visitors from ye old Maryland of England, that being Brian Braddock and Megan. Megan doesn't have a last name, right? Yeah, she's just sort of Megan. She's kind of a fearful creature. It's Megan a is story. really complicated. Megan will be a cold open eventually. Yes, and also a character we'll be talking a great deal about as Excalibur rears its head and we look into some of the background behind it. She's great, though. You'll like her. But they're visiting. So, yes, like you said, Rachel, once again, we have Alan Davis drawing annuals this year, just like he did last year. And once again, some of these British characters factor in. I want Excalibur so much, you guys. Yeah, it does feel kind of like we've been poised on the edge of that for a really long time, even more so, I would imagine, if we'd been following along concurrently with the Captain Britain stuff. Totally. Eventually, everyone heads back to bed as Wolverine sort of staggers off to presumably go, like, you know, snicked vomit out of his face. And what it turns out is that the reason that Wolverine is drinking tonight is that it is what would have been the anniversary of his wedding to Mariko Yoshida if that had not ended terribly and aborted mid-ceremony. And to recap that, so Wolverine met Mariko in one of the early times the X-Men were in Japan. And they had a brief and intense romance, they got engaged, but thanks to Mastermind being a total douchebag, that wedding fell apart, and their relationship did as well. Didn't he just straight up, like, hand off a kid to her at one point? He did. He found a little girl and was like, hey, take this. I don't know what to do with it. It was actually much sweeter than that, but still. Wolverine is weird, man. He totally is. But yeah, so he's hanging out at this sort of makeshift Japanese shrine that he has in his bedroom. It's got pictures of Mariko and Amako, who's the little girl that we were just talking about. Basically, he ponders sort of the duality of him, the fact that he's got this beast side and this noble side, he's got this Western side and this Japanese side, this savage side and this honorable side, and he doesn't know what to do with it this day, especially of all days. You know, that he could fight for her and win her, but he's not going to because honor. And so as Wolverine is being super, super emo with katanas, which I guess are two great tastes that go great together. Oh my god, now I'm picturing an emu with the katana? Oh god, emu are dangerous enough as it is. Don't give them swords. But it would have to hop? 
Because right. it would be holding the sword, it would just be hopping along, like making those drumming noises, this is swinging the worst a sword. Thing. This is the worst thing we've ever come up with. Oh man, I hope we never get those like weird psychic powers. It would or be kind here. of off balance. I guess it would. So anyway, uh, Emu with katanas, very much aside, as Wolverine is pondering the meaning of his life and identity, the Braddocks, Captain Britain and Psylocke, who are in fact twin brother and sister, they can't get back to sleep, so they're just sort of hanging out in the kitchen and making tea and catching up. And. Psylocke is at this point very new to the X-Men, and she's been struggling a lot with her role on the team and whether she even wants to be there. Her brother is the grand mystical savior superhero of England, but she's never really been quite sure that that was the life she wanted, or that even if it was, you know, she had the chops for it. And so she is asking herself, do I truly belong? And if so, why? You see, some of the team, like Havoc, chose the glory road out of duty. Some, like poor Dazzler, because fate gives them no real choice. But others seem actually born to it. Wolverine is one, Storm another. I must know, Brian. Which am I? Yeah, this lineup of X-Men does consist of a lot of characters who probably wouldn't be X-Men unless they absolutely had to. And after the mutant massacre, with it not being safe to be a mutant on your own anymore, they kind of do. So Psylocke's not really coming into a place of confidence on the team, since she's not in a place of confidence in her own head and heart. That's a lot of confusion and ambiguity right there. Silek is, however, one of the more powerful members of the team at this point, as demonstrated when a mysterious attacker shows up in the mansion and manages to take out everyone but her. You know, it's one of those things where you just see mysterious, shadowy, very quick figure just blindsiding everybody, no matter how much they try to strategize and be awesome. And Psylocke is the only one left to see this guy. Rachel, how do we even talk about this guy? Okay, so I want you to take a moment. I want you to imagine a man. Very muscular man, with a little tiny head, the world's worst spray tan, like intensely, intensely orange, a hairstyle that, oh God, I'm trying to think of how best to describe this hairstyle. It's somewhere between Krusty the Clown and 50s Housewife. It's that kind of really intense flip, dressed in an outfit and sort of generally assembled in, in ways that kind of take me straight to sexy Lorax Halloween costume. Yeah, he's like a giant, lightly armored Oompa Loompa. I mean, what is even happening with this dude? This is a very carefully assembled gentleman, Miles. He has obviously put a great deal of work into his look with an effect that I can only describe as memorable. I mean, if what he's going for is distinctive and very much his own thing, then man, he's got that down. He has nailed that particular direction to the detriment of everyone everywhere forever. I think what he's done is he's weaponized awful fashion. Like, we know he's a jerk and he's a villain. We'll get to that momentarily. But I think this is like deliberate. He's like, all right, how can I just assault the eyes and sensibilities of everyone around me? Like, okay, you know, you can see him sort of at the stylist, like, no, no, flip it. Flip it harder. More blow dryer. You know that, that big round comb yeah that one that's the one or like he's you know in the space clothing store buying space clothing oh this is going to look so bad does it come in something pucer yes or even skimpier or like he's spending hours at the gym because honestly i think he'd look better if he wasn't super buff and cut yeah somehow that makes the whole thing even stranger like there's no aspect of his appearance that quite seems matched to any other aspect of his appearance Yeah, like, this character design is just so painful that it really comes around the other side to become something truly amazing. Yeah, it's kind of transcendent. And this gentleman goes by the name of Horde. 
Which is a really weird name because there's just one of him and Horde means like a lot of dudes. Yeah, right. I sort of expected him to turn out to break into like a swarm of smaller versions of himself or something. But no, no, he's just a dude named Horde. Yeah. He also has nothing to do with Hordak from She-Ra, which is kind of unfortunate. Or the Horde as in the Horde versus the Alliance. Right. So this is Horde. He looks ridiculous. And what we find out as he, you know, holds all the mutants hostage and basically tells Psylocke to stand down or else he'll kill them. Is that he has a really dubious notion of consent, too. Yes, well, that too. But he explains that he is a mutant of his race. We never really find out what race. And he uses his power to rule, unlike these pitiful X-Men who use it to, you know, help people who think they're jerks. Does he use it to rule, like, as a monarch? Or is he just saying, like, I use it to rule, man. I rule. You know, I'm going to say, why can't it be both? Does he perhaps rule on the slopes or the skate park? He and Adam X actually go and, like, do extreme sports every winter. Does he do them dressed like that? Of course. That is pretty extreme. I'm just saying. Um, Actually, his outfit reminds me of Adam X's a fair bit. Like, it's these weird really? little metal bits and blades just sticking out randomly. But Adam X's, like, those at least have, have grounding in other clothing. Like, the metal bits of Horde's costume just sort of hover over his unmentionables. That's true. Or, or maybe the unique anatomy of his species allows him to use his unmentionables as these sort of pinchers or maybe suction cups to hold them on. We maybe don't know. the metal bits are his unmentionables. Maybe he's naked. There are so many mysteries here, Rachel. Like, I wasn't sure what to think about this annual, but now there's just so many questions being answered. I find myself immensely engaged. Well, and left unsolved. Obviously, there needs to be a follow-up to this. Uh, there is. Okay, Marvel, uh, you know, you're looking for new books after Secret Wars. We need an ongoing starring Horde. Cosmic Wolverine and the Secret of Horde's Junk. Perfect. This will sell itself. Marvel wasn't going to call us after the last couple episodes. They're really not going to At this point, Marvel has probably just blocked our numbers. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, this is Horde, and what he basically says after bringing in Storm for some completely involuntary non-consensual makeouts, which is totally not okay, is that he wants to use the X-Men on this mission. He wants them to break into the Citadel of Light and Shadow and steal the Crystal of Ultimate Vision. And then he's going to like give that crystal to the Witch Matoya, and then she's going to give him the herb so he can wake up the Elf Prince, who's going to give him the key. I know how this goes. Yeah, no, that, that's actually kind of where I went to on that. It's such a fetch quest. It, it totally is. But the entire time he's saying, you guys have to do this for me, he's being a total jerk about it. Psylocke is attempting to give him the mind whammy to save her friends, and he just says, Nice try, Psylocke, but your mind powers won't work on me, and Longshot's incredible luck won't do the slightest good, because I'm the lucky one here. He's such a braggart. He's just obnoxious. Like, he's not even a fun villain. He's just, eh. Don't like the sound of that, Havoc? Poor dear lad. So strong, so angry, so helpless. See, that's just weird like a sinister line. Thinking of absorbing my powers and psyche? Sugar? You can't. Like, he's just mean. This well, and, mean. and he tells them eventually, well, you have to do this thing for me because otherwise I'm just going to destroy your planet. And so the X-Men realize, well, we did just get taken out by him in like seconds and we don't want to have to look at him anymore because his fashion sense is atrocious. So I guess we have to. But obviously we've got to grind and level up first. Well, you know, they can go fight brontosaurus in that one secret forest that they can only get to by airship. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I just went from Final Fantasy 1 to Final Fantasy 6. We're all over the place today, listeners. You know, so was Square in the 90s. Uh, that's true. And so, yeah, they agree to it, and they look behind themselves, and sure enough, there is the Citadel of Light and Shadow, which, to be fair, is a pretty badass-looking castle. Like, I, I would hang out there. I would sneak in there. It's impressive, and they agree they're going to go in. They're going to try for this. And Wolverine says to Storm, A long shot gamble, darling, if I ever heard one. To which Storm responds, how fortunate, then, we have a long shot with us to help play it. God damn it, Storm. God damn it, Wolverine. You know what, X-Men? You are just, you're fired. You're all fired. Yeah, like, go, go home. home. No, um, not to the mansion. You can't live there anymore, because that's for X-Men. You're not X-Men. You're fired for that joke. You weren't the leaders of the X-Men. It's just Storm and Wolverine. Too bad. 
So now that we've fired the X-Men, I actually do really like... Uh, now that we've fired the X-Men, let's talk more about Final Fantasy. Yes. Or we could talk about the fact that there is a little cool scene here, which is that Storm actually pulls Wolverine in and kisses him, like knowing they're going to their certain death. It's pretty hot. It also is a precursor to their relationship that they had just a few years ago in X-Men that I had forgotten really existed. Yeah, it's one of a million precursors because Storm and Wolverine as like the romance that both of them kind of flirt with and go back to has literally been playing out for 20 years actually almost 30. I mean, this has been around since almost the beginning and it keeps coming back and everyone always forgets that, but it's been there. I guess so. Yeah. And so the X-Men all head in. Longshot really doesn't want to go in, but Dazzler's like, hey, you know, please, I need you. Come on. And so he does. And of course, the door slams behind them because that's what happens when you go into a dungeon like the Citadel of Light and Shadow. Havoc attempts to zap it. I don't know why he thinks this is going to work because they can't even zap Horde, but it doesn't. And he uses this opportunity to drop a Forbidden Planet reference because that's what you do when you're on Claremont's X-Men. Yeah, I kind of feel like Havoc and Cannonball should hang out and they can just totally geek out over obscure and more well-known science fiction and like spend their days that way. Aw, yeah. That would actually be amazing because Alex's life is terrible. He needs something good. He needs to, like, you know, hang out with a young adult who he can share his love of speculative fiction with. Speculative fiction and rocks. That's true. They both. That's not true. Geophysics isn't just about rocks, but still. It's about a lot. It is. It is. So they continue onward. And okay, so I'm going to say right now, this entire thing, we've been making the Final Fantasy references, but what it really reminds me of is a D&D dungeon. And specifically, it reminds me of a D&D dungeon with World of Darkness sensibilities. This entire thing is a role-playing game quest, and I mean, the more we go into it, the more this seems to be the case. I want you to elaborate on that a little bit, a D&D dungeon with World of Darkness sensibilities. I see no trench coats. I see no katana here. Ah, but what we do I see not even a single motorcycle, Miles. There are no vampires. What are you talking about? I am talking about the tendency in almost every World of Darkness game I have ever played in or run to every once in a while fall back on the trope of you go into a place and every character is assaulted with psychic visions with sort of fantasy worlds that are specific to their psychological issues that they have to resolve or not to get through it. Basically just going down the list of all the players, and unfortunately when you do that, your other players tend to get kind of bored because they're not involved, but it's exactly like this. You know, you could have done that in two words. Black Mercy. Well, you know, uh, why use two words when you can use like a hundred? So many reasons. But no, it's a for the man who has everything scenario where they're pulled into their sort of dreams and their ideal versions of themselves and they have to break out of those to actually be able to get through the Citadel. We should explain. So what happens here in the Citadel of Light and Shadow is that each of the X-Men is confronted with kind of what they wish the world was of their greatest secret desires. And basically, they feel as if they are in these worlds and whether they accept or reject them kind of determines whether they continue onward or not. I don't know that they're all secret desires, though. Like, Havoc seems much, much more like a secret fear. Well, that's true. Okay, well, let's just go down the list. So this starts off with Rogue. Now, Rogue's scenario is super weird. Yeah, Rogue's secret desire is apparently to be like an antebellum society lady. It's really uncomfortable on a number of levels, and it really doesn't fit the character. Like, I feel like, honestly, what Rogue's secret deepest want would be is not something that you can show in a Codera comic. But even then, like, a super formal ball just really doesn't seem like her style. Yeah, I mean, Rogue is Southern, that's absolutely true, but being an, as the book calls it, plantation princess. Wow, that's uh, one way to phrase that. Yeah, it seems Jesus. a little iffy, but so she does go into this world, she accepts the fantasy of herself. Okay, to be fair, she does look pretty awesome in that giant, poofy, antebellum dress, I gotta give her that. And as the X-Men watch, all they see is Rogue putting her hands up to a reflective crystal wall, and then falling into dust, and just sort of disintegrating. 
which they deal with with a surprising amount of okayness. I mean, I would be pretty disturbed if one of my best buddies just turned into dust and died, right? Yeah, they accept the logic of the Citadel almost immediately, which is actually kind of telling based on what it's going to turn out to be. But first, there are more illusions. Now, in the meantime, Havoc is worrying about his powers. He's sick of being told what to do. He's sick of having to try to contain them. And his powers flare and flare and flare and flare until he finally effectively turns into a star. Yeah, and he just, you know, consumes the solar system, basically. He destroys the entire Milky Way. What the hell, Havoc? Truly, you are the worst Summers brother at this point in time. So yeah, the X-Men continue on, feeling pretty okay about having lost two friends. I mean, I guess I kind of get it. Like, the stakes are really high. They're trying to save the world, so there's really no time to sit and cry. But still, guys, damn, that's cold. and again, they're taking everything in a really almost, like, it's dream logic. Like, oh, well, this has happened, and obviously the thing for us to do is to continue on our quest. So let's do that. And they do, except for one who is Longshot. Longshot has been more and more freaked out by this place, and he just fades away to nothing. Yeah, he's been starting to fade, and he just sort of ghosts out. And the last thing he says while the X-Men can still hear him is that he gets the impression that the Citadel wants him to be part of it. Again, with the role-playing analogy, I'm pretty sure the DM just didn't know what to do with Longshot or, like, forgot that player was going to show up that day, and so just bullshitted something at the last minute. Aw. Unfortunate. But yeah, and the X-Men are trying to figure out why, and even the explanation doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, Psylocke is telling Megan her theory. Perhaps his innocence, Megan, his innate purity. We have heart's desires, choices to make about our lives and destinies. Perhaps the Citadel couldn't stand Longshot having none? Which, okay, I I, I, I guess so. except he does have desires and make choices, he just doesn't have a lot of memories to back them up with. Yeah, and I mean, okay, I guess if we want to use this as a thought experiment, it could be that the Citadel is a sort of Silent Hill-like location, where it constructs the realities it inflicts upon its victims from their own memories. No, dude, you're just in Silent Hill mode, because you just talked about it on Intuit. Well, I mean, I'm always in Silent Hill mode a little. Um, That's kind of scary. For me, it's always like this. Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, that's three X-Men down already. This is all happening very quickly, just one thing after another after another. And the next thing we see is Dazzler seeing her reflection and suddenly finding herself... Okay, Well, Dazzler runs after Longshot dies. Dazzler runs away, and instead of seeing a reflection, she runs directly into another version of herself. Yeah, and so she's this prosecutor in a courtroom, and we see the kingpin, you know, like from Spider-Man and Daredevil, on trial. Mr. Wilson Fisk, you claim to be a humble importer of spices. Are you not, in fact, the absolute monarch of the North American underworld? The infamous kingpin of crime? Okay, I'm just saying, would a mere spice importer mix a white waiter's coat and purple pinstripe pants? I think not. That is something you have to earn. Sure. And Dazzler knows this, too, because no sooner has the courtroom scene played out and then continued into her appointment as a Supreme Court justice, but we see yet a different possible destiny where she is a rock star with an amazing outfit. Can we talk about her rock star outfit, though? Like, it's very skids. It's pretty great. She actually reminded me a lot of Sally Blevins when she first showed up. But and then she sees yet a third identity she could have become, a very clearly homeless woman. And so basically, these are all different possibilities for Dazzler. The lawyer, for instance, if you're not familiar with the character, her father had been a lawyer and she had considered following in his footsteps. And okay, so I like what happens here because Dazzler just starts freaking out, just saying, Someone help me. Tell me which is best, which to choose. It's up to me. No one to depend on, no one to blame but myself. If I never take a risk, I'll never have to worry about making a mistake, failing, being hurt. There's safety in defeat, luxury in self-pity. Is that what I really want? And this I really dig. 
Because, okay, you know, we don't learn a lot about Rogue with her being a plantation princess. But here, this is cutting to the core of who Dazzler is. This is consistent with her background. It's consistent with the spot she finds herself in at this point in chronology, psychologically. It's interesting and it's cool. This is how you do one of these scenarios right. And I wish we got to see more like this right here. And Psylocke is getting more and more fed up with this. And she punches a wall in frustration and is surprised when it smashes under her hand. It cuts her and she realizes that she's not bleeding. And quietly in the background, while the others are playing things out, peels away the skin of her hand to reveal metal. Yeah. So that's a twist. That is. And she hides this as we get yet another fantasy as Captain Britain smashes through the floor and many other floors to find a small replica of the Citadel inside the Citadel. And inside, he finds his own fantasy. He's a professor, Megan is his wife, who's pregnant I should point out, Brian kind of has a similar frustrated academic background as Havoc's. They should probably talk about that. Havoc can talk to Cannonball about science fiction and to Captain Britain about just wanting his goddamn degree. Havoc needs better role models. He really does. Havoc needs a lot of things. A better hat, too. But yeah, so here's this wonderful, like, almost Stepford Wives ideal kind of life that's everything that Brian's always wanted and everything that Megan has wanted with him. So that actually really surprised me because something that happens a lot, it's very, very clear from very early on that this is the life that Megan wants. I mean, my go-to place for Megan is the song Somewhere That's Green from Little Shop of Horrors. Like, she's got that very daytime commercial-based suburban fantasy. That is what Megan wants. Like, Megan's idea of what dream life should be comes from growing up shut inside, watching TV and romanticizing it. And Brian has always been aggressively derisive of that, or is consistently for a very, very long time. And I think he really still is at this point. And so seeing that specifically as his fantasy is a really interesting twist. Well, yeah, because I mean, the impression I've sometimes gotten with Captain Britain is that part of the reason he is so derisive toward Megan's dreams of normalcy is because he has to keep rationalizing to himself that being Captain Britain is the right and necessary and good thing to do. So he sometimes, I think, does that by basically disparaging the stuff he really does want, which is just to be a dude, just to be normal. He's kind of a dick about it, too. Uh, Captain Britain is often kind of a dick. Captain Britain is a huge dick. But, you know, in this fantasy is Betsy, is Brian's twin sister. And so he turns to her saying, hey, I need to go into this. Megan and I need to do this, but you're welcome to join us. And that's where Betsy Braddock throws her skin at her brother. Yeah, it's a strong statement. She just tears off her skin with the metal underneath. And I'd forgotten after the first time I'd read this and I went back and read it. But no, she just literally throws her skin in his face. You can just say, yeah, or you can say, yeah, while throwing your skin at your brother. Do you think they keep it? I don't know. I think maybe they just like put it in a frame. Maybe they do some like cross stitch using it as a a medium. Or like fold it up and sort of just put it in the bottom drawer and really hope that no one ever looks there. Because like, what do you, you can't just throw that, your your twin sister's skin away. Listeners, what would you you do? If you were living a uh, perfect, normal suburban life and you had to do something with your twin sister's disembodied skin, what would you do with that? I mean, she's still okay. It's not like you murder her or anything. She just turned into metal, ripped off her skin and threw it at you. You know, I mean... it's So it's cool. Everything's cool, but like, it's going to be really hard to explain to guests. Yeah. This uh, issue really brings up the hard questions. But this part is actually really interesting because this highlights something that we've seen in Betsy before, which is that, you know... A tendency to rip off her own skin and throw it at people while turning into metal? Well, not that specifically, but metaphorically... No, that's that actually, that, that is exactly what Husk's powers will be years later, but... Metaphorically, on the outside, Betsy is this very feminine, very almost princess-like character. I mean, her superhero costume is this pink and purple poofy thing. 
And she and it's awesome. It is. Uh, but what we've seen within her is this sort of more violent, almost merciless warrior's heart. Like she's a very cold and hard person when it comes to hard decisions. And we've seen that a few times. And now here it is, the metaphor made flesh. You know what, though? I reject that duality. I reject that duality really hard because one of the things I love most about Betsy in this era is that like the princess stuff and the warrior stuff, they aren't treated as diametrically opposed. Look at Metal Betsy. She still looks like a goddamn fairy tale princess. She just looks like a really, you know, hardcore warrior fairy tale princess. Like she's still super, super, super femme. And that's something that to me is so important about this character, that those aren't treated as diametrically opposed qualities, that they're things that are both part of her and are both parts of each other. Yeah. And I, I think that subtlety is at least to a degree maintained in this issue. I think Psylocke and Dazzler's fantasies are probably two of the more interesting. But she agrees to hold off Horde, who it turns out is following them. His motivations are a little confusing in this. You know, stuff. Now that she is in this super warrior form and urges her friends to continue onward. And so they do. And the next person to get pulled into a fantasy is Wolverine. Wolverine, of course, gets pulled into the Yashda ancestral home where he can marry Mariko again. But before he can, she turns into basically a Mariko-ized version of Yukio, who was the ninja that actually both he and Storm had flings with. And all of a sudden, they're in this sort of brawly, make-out-y, dancey, arm-wrestly club. And it's a very you-can-have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too thing. And he really wants her, and he really wants her to be this form of her, because, you know, this is somebody for whom he wouldn't have to change. It's somebody with whom things would be easy. Well, in both parts of himself, but no, he knows it's not real, and he's Wolverine, and this is all about Wolverine, you know, appealing to his higher nature, so he smashes through the wall. Meanwhile, Storm's fantasy is awfully similar. She also gets pulled into Tokyo by Yukio, who is her... You know, I'm just going to go ahead and say Yukio, her ex. Yeah, basically. I mean, Yukio is the one that Storm got her punk look from and changed her outlook on life a great deal while she was running around with. And um, was totally doing it with. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's pretty clear to everybody, yeah. I think. Of course, this is her absolute temptation because this is where life for her was simple. It was about the moment. It was not about thinking of consequences or higher ideals. It was just about enjoying herself and being free. Jumping off buildings for fun. And so, as this is all going on, as she's getting pulled into this fantasy, Wolverine smashes through the ceiling, because when he went through the wall, gravity messed up and the ceiling changed. You know, the DM rolled that on the trap table. That happens. And he basically pushes Storm out of the center as Horde approaches, figuring that only he has a chance of holding Horde off and that he wants to save Storm. Well, Horde's not just approaching. Horde is approaching with some of the remaining shards of Psylocke's metal form. So obviously that's how that fight ended. It's actually really gruesome. He's got like her head and shoulder and arm just sort of torn apart. Like there are jagged edges where the rest of her body was, which, ugh. And he continues, Horde does, by just coming up to Wolverine and ripping his heart out. Yeah. Like you do. And so that happens. But a single drop of blood splashes from Wolverine's severed heart and hits the crystal at the center of the citadel of light and shadow. Healing the crystal and once again merging the long ago split Skeksis and Mystics. Bet you didn't see it going that way. Okay, no, that doesn't happen. It Instead, might. His blood hits the crystal, and all of a sudden, a new Wolverine starts getting sort of built, you know, from the skeleton to the muscle outward. It's a brand new, very naked Logan. Remember that stupid, stupid, stupid thing that is going to haunt us for years to come about how Wolverine can regenerate from a drop of his own blood? Yeah. This is where that starts. Now, what everyone else neglected to remember afterwards is that specifically Wolverine can regenerate from a drop of his own blood if he's powered by a magical cosmic runs the universe controls evolution crystal, which is usually absent from later explorations of that particular scenario. But still, the seeds are totally here. Horde's like, hey, I thought you were dead. And Wolverine replies, 
That's what I thought, but my healing factors in every cell of my body. So, I guess, is my will to live. Given sufficient power, my entire body could be regenerated from the genetic data encoded in a single cell, or drop of blood. And so many terrible Wolverine stories come out of this very moment. Remember how I said I was having trouble deciding how I felt about this annual? Uh Uh-huh. I hate it. (laughs) Damn you, Wolverine, single drop of blood healing. You've ruined everything. That's right. But yeah, so Wolverine, in his newly omnipotent form, pulls the crystal out of Horde's forehead, and Horde immediately ages to death because apparently he was using this power to keep his longevity. There are a lot of pieces of this story that just kind of get thrown in out of nowhere it's true and one of them here is that now that wolverine has sort of merged with this crystal that his blood got on he's omnipotent like he wonders whether this is what gene felt when she was phoenix well not technically that happened but he doesn't know that you can tell he's omnipotent because he's kind of a white outline against a big cosmic background that's and what happens so, yeah he's like well what do i do with this power i could resurrect my friends i could make everything okay heal the crystal wolverine But if I did that, I'd be doing everything I hated in the world. I'd be becoming this controlling, omnipotent figure. You could bring Kira back to life. And so he decides, no, nobody should have this kind of power, regardless of the good I can do with it. And he smashes the crystal. That's not what the podlings died for, you son of a bitch. You know, Logan doesn't always have the best judgment. And so as that happens, everything goes white. And the X-Men wake up alive and well back in the X-Mansion. And it was all a dream. But they do remember what happened. And for some of them, like Betsy and Rogue, they're like, oh, hey, that was actually kind of cool. And some of them, like Havoc, are like, well, that means I doubly can't let go ever because I'll blow up the entire world and fry my friends. God damn it. <laughs> it sucks to be Havoc so much. It always does. And what we see after that, as the X-Men sort of resign themselves to this having occurred, and Wolverine goes back to be at a little more peace with Mariko, having gone through this strange ordeal, which has somehow strengthened him, we see the Citadel itself, and we see these statues that we saw outside it before, realizing that they are all, in fact, an example of different species that Horde or someone has brought to the Citadel to undergo this test. All the other species apparently have failed. They've tried to use that power. And thus, we learn, sort of out of nowhere in a caption randomly, they have lost the ability to evolve. And in fact, two of the races are the Kree and the Skrulls, who can't evolve, so I guess this is why. Can I tell you a story about this? So I keep on wanting to do evolution as portrayed in the Marvel Universe as a cold open, and I keep on giving up partway through researching it because there's just no way. Yeah, and this would uh, certainly add some additional static to that staticky television show that is that. It's, oh man, (laughs) I can't even be appalled or shocked at this stuff anymore. It's just like, yeah, sure, sure, why not? So yeah, this is a really weird issue. Not only does it introduce what should be a gigantic Marvel Universe plot point on the last page, but it doesn't really tie into anything. I mean, yes, Wolverine saves evolution, and yes, it deals with the characters as they are at this point in history. And I'm not going to say that you need consequences to make a story worthwhile, but this story just doesn't seem to have any consequences. Well, and as far as I know, this cosmology never comes back up. Although it is referenced on like a ton of wiki pages, I'm just saying. Yeah, but they all just tie back to this, right? Pretty much. So, yeah, very strange issue. Now, typically I'm a big fan of annuals. I think they get a bad rap as, you know, being unnecessary. This one, though, I think might come closer to that category than many of the rest of them do. However, we have something entirely different to tell you about next. And that is New Mutants Annual number three. If you've read any New Mutants Annuals, actually a lot of them are memorable, but this is one of the ones that I find sticks with people the most. This is called Anything You Can Do with an implied I Can Do Better, and 
it features a character who makes me very, very, very glad that we are doing this in the Marvel Universe rather than DC because Impossible Man is so much easier to pronounce than the name of that weird little fucker who chases Superman all the time. Mr. Mixel? Mixel? Pl- don't, Mixel don't, pl- no, I, I don't know. It's all consonants. It is. Uh, Screw that guy. We've got the Impossible Man. So who is the Impossible Man? So the Impossible Man, I believe he first appeared in Fantastic Four. He's this green and purple, very cartoony looking alien, and he can change his form with a pop sound effect to basically anything. Well, that's because he's a pop upian from Planet Pop-Up. If this sounds silly, listeners, it's because this is is silly. Yeah, and that's the thing about this annual. It's one of our favorites, but we kind of struggled with figuring out how to approach it. Because the thing is, not that much actually happens in it. Doesn't really have any deep continuity. And it's really funny and silly in really self-aware ways. So like with a lot of annuals, with stuff that's, you know, not as good, stuff like the Horde story, I would say, for instance, there's a lot for us to sink our teeth into and riff on. In this, it's a fairly surface level story, and it kind of riffs on itself. So we will try. We will do our best. But understand, you should really just track this issue down and read it. It is absolutely goddamn delightful. Yup. Before we dive in, let's look at the New Mutants. This is not the current lineup that we've been looking at in the most recent New Mutants episodes. So we've got a nine-person team these days. Who's on that? So we have the original five New Mutants. We have Cannonball, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, Mirage, and Karma. We have the newer kids. Those are, let's see, Cypher and Warlock, who joined about the same time. And Magma and Magic. Now, it should be noted that apparently both Magma and Karma have the flu at this point, so they don't actually appear in this issue at all. Which is basically how Claremont puts aside extra cast members when he's juggling this many, you know, nine times out of ten. It does tend to happen, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we have our seven characters, and I love the way this issue opens. This issue opens with Cypher effectively playing DJ to the Danger Room. Yeah, he's um, listening to, and I quote, music with a beat to scheme by, hard, driving, hot. Firing his blood, sparking his mind in the nastiest of ways. Wow, Cypher. Apparently this music, by the way, is The Bangles, The Beastie Boys, Joan Jett, Lila Cheney, Dazzler, and Bruce Springsteen. Oh, those bangles. This is very 1987, but I can't really fault any of it. kind of adorable. Yes, it is. Cypher is the least cool kid ever. But I love him. And so, yeah, we have That's why I love him. We have a pretty standard danger room opening as Cypher creates this scenario to help train his teammates. And a rare acknowledgement of the fact that no Doug should actually be down there, because they talk about how, well, the scenario is set up to test physical powers, and Doug's powers are relatively low-key. They're non-combative in nature. So it makes more sense for him to be running this particular exercise. Well, someone else points out, yeah, but that's also true of Mirage, and she's down here. And Mirage just replies, I'm War Chief Wolfsbane. It's my job. Which is to say, shut the hell up and try to tell me to leave. Yeah, exactly. And so... I'm not going to say it's a great explanation for why this keeps happening, but at least it's an explanation. I mean, the fact is Mirage would certainly protest a hell of a lot more and a hell of a lot more effectively than Cypher would. And they fight aged down versions of the Avengers, which is fairly charming, but it is interrupted when the power goes out and there's a big earthquake, communications are down, and suddenly a giant green ship is hovering above the Xavier School. And it is, in fact, the Impossible Man. And one of them, as a matter of fact, recognizes the Impossible Man, and that is because he has shown up in an X-Men annual before, and that is Uncanny X-Men annual number seven. Miles, you want to give a little bit of background there? Yeah, so as the careful listener may recall, there are a few old annuals that we haven't actually covered, and this is one of them. This is number seven called Scavenger Hunt, and it's kind of the same deal. Basically, the X-Men are out playing baseball outside the mansion, and they're interrupted, just like in this issue, by a ship descending. In their case, what they see is a giant green and purple Galactus who promptly steals the mansion. He just disappears, and then the mansion's gone too, and all the ground around it. The hell what? Yeah, and so the X-Men are like, hey, that's our house, dude. And Xavier tries to probe Galactus's mind while he's still there. He can't. He gets this weird feedback thing. 
So they just go and chase what they think is Galactus. The first place he goes from the expansion is the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier, where he interrupts Nick Fury having some sexy times with a lady to steal Nick Fury's eye patch. Yeah, and the X-Men are, you know, sort of in hot pursuit, and at this point it becomes clear, this isn't Galactus, this is something else. Wouldn't it be funny if it actually were Galactus, though, just being a dick? Oh man, that would be totally great. They follow the, uh, who it quickly becomes clear is the Impossible Man, the old Fantastic Four character, to the Savage Land, where he steals Kazar's tiger Zabu, to the Avengers Mansion, where in a Fantastic Car uh, from the Fantastic Four, he steals all of the Wasp's costumes. He gets Doctor Strange's sigil window from the Sanctum Sanctorum, Celine's costume from the Hellfire Club, and then he heads out to the Marvel offices, because it's that kind of story. Yeah, like, he goes to the old Marvel offices, but it turned out they moved, so he goes to the new ones, and the the X-Men find him there, and there's this big, like, you know, rampagey, smash-everything, turnover-tables fight in Marvel as, like, all of the various editors and employees are all freaking out. And basically, I think it was an excuse for Michael Golden, who did the art on this, to just draw everybody who worked for Marvel in the midst of this big X-Men brawl. Finally, the X-Men confront the Impossible Man, and he explains that he is on a scavenger hunt. His species, who are all recently differentiated clones of him because, you know, why not? are trying to choose a leader because they figured that was the way to, you know, develop as a civilization. He's really into Earth. People on Earth have leaders. They tried voting, but everyone just voted for themselves. And so the deal was, whoever could go to a planet and come back with the most cool stuff would be the leader. And the X-Men, who are with, by the way, Lalandra, the deposed Empress of the Shi'ar at this point, are like, well, okay, uh, you're just going to keep causing more chaos unless we do something. So Lalandra says, hey, I'm an empress. I can judge. I can look at everybody's stuff and see who did the best. Which she says just in time for a bunch of alien war types to come down and say, these people have been screwing up our civilization as well. We'll kill them all. And she says, you know, she'll judge the contest on the terms that they have to give back all the stuff afterwards. Yeah. And so she does. The Impossible Man loses. Everything, you know, ends up okay. It cuts to the Possible man having a tantrum and crying in the X Mansion's yard, only to be cheered up by Kitty and Deliana giving him ice cream. At which point he turns into Tom Selleck and they say he's super sexy and then he turns into Garfield and the issue ends. And that's basically how the Impossible Man works. Yeah, he is completely ridiculous. The stories that he's in are themselves completely ridiculous and often break the fourth wall and or bend continuity in other ways. And I am pleased to say that New Mutants Annual number three is certainly a worthy successor to the batshit weirdness of Uncanny X-Men Annual number seven. Now, if it's not obvious from that Uncanny X-Men Annual, the Impossible Man's no of friendship are somewhat different from most of ours, in that he sort of sees his friends as anyone he has interacted with in the past. The X-Men are his friends, and he wants to have fun with them. He wants to play with them, and they won't, except for one of them, because the Impossible Man somehow figures out exactly how to push Warlock's buttons. Right, and so just as all the New Mutants are leaving saying, dude, we're not gonna bite, Warlock's like, hey, anything you can do, I can do better, and they teleport away. The rest of the issue is basically a rapid-fire montage of the Impossible Man and Warlock shape-shifting in a series of increasingly ridiculous showdowns. Yeah, I feel like we should just sort of run down the list here. So We should. This is so fun. And again, I really encourage you to track down and read this annual. It's on Marvel Unlimited if you've got access to that. It's also one that shows up in back-issue bins fairly regularly. It's just tremendous, silly, lighthearted fun. 
So the New Mutants in their adult costumes, which Alan Davis Why? apparently loves drawing because no. he did in the last year no. as well. Yes, no. we, we know your feelings, Rachel. They're, they're, so they're not wrong. They're so bad. They uh, follow Warlock and the Impossible Man to Manhattan, where they're fighting as the Hulk versus the Thing. Then over to Rio de Janeiro, uh, Sunspot's hometown, where they're having this sort of bodybuilder competition on the beach. Yeah, the Impossible Man has painted himself up in human colors for this, but they get knocked into the water and Warlock reverts to form because the water interferes with the circuitry. The Impossible Man's makeup washes off and the ladies who have been throwing their underwear at them are absolutely appalled. I actually really love the way this works. It reminds me very much of the uh, the female Bamfs in the Nightcrawler miniseries as they just, you know, charge forward wielding like shoes and various beach toys and stuff. Liars, cheats, swine, cads, recreants, mendicants, bounders. Kill, maim, gouge, beat, hurt, rip, dismember, burn, tear, cut, chop, shoot, hit. I mean, I know people don't ever really talk like that, but it's hilarious every time they do they in a comic. They should. And I fully get behind it. The New Mutants continue following Warlock and the Impossible Man across the world for more transformy competitions. They basically interrupt Wimbledon. And then they end up at Forbidden Planet Comics, which is like totally a real place, fighting as Captain America and Captain Britain. And that's when things get kind of interesting because Warlock points out, wait a minute, there's a problem with this. They're both heroes. Heroes don't fight heroes. Warlock knows how this works, and he has strong feelings about it. Yeah, and at this point in the conversation, they are Xavier and Magneto, who basically tell the New Mutants to go away, and the Impossible Man uses his Magneto powers, which I guess he gets when he looks like Magneto, to wrap them in some metal stuff. Um, They end up actually as Rambo and Rocky confronting each other, when Warlock finally makes his heroes can't fight heroes point. At which point, the Impossible Man turns into Clubber Lang and punches Rocky with no warning because, hey, he's a bad guy. He can do that, right? They go through Fury and Baron Strucker, Spider-Woman and Viper, which Impossible Man protests because he's friends with Spider-Woman or at least thinks he is, so he can't fight her. They keep on going through forms and the Impossible Man starts to play hardball when Magic ports Warlock away and tries to break them up. He says, well, you know, if you don't let us play this out, I'm going to turn the Earth into green cheese. I'm going to destroy your planet because you wouldn't let me play my game. Yeah, he's Thanos at this point, by the way, and is holding Cannonball up by his neck. Not cool. And they keep escalating. By the time they get to Tokyo, they are the Watcher and Galactus. And then... Okay, so I recognize one of the characters they turn into next, which is Godzilla. The other, I'm assuming, is a giant monster character. If only we had a giant monster expert sitting at the other side of the soundboard right now. Kyle, you want to come in and guest expert on this? Uh, Yeah, hey guys. I would love to guest expert on this. Okay, so uh, we see uh, the Impossible Man is Godzilla. What is Warlock right now? Okay, so Warlock is basically an amalgamation of what is known here in the States as the Shogun Warriors. In Japan, in the 70s, a manga artist named Go Nagai created these gigantic robots that are piloted by a single person or sometimes a team of people, and they fight giant monsters of the week. The Japanese animated shows and the toys were imported to the U.S., and Marvel picked up the license. They had a 20-issue series, but at this point, the comic was long over, and I'm not sure what was up with the license. So possibly related to that... Warlock isn't mimicking a specific super robot. He's kind of a mix between Brave Radine and Combatra. And while both original properties are from Japan, outside of like mock battles played out by kids' toys, Godzilla never fought any of the Shogun Warriors. Dude. So, listeners, the unique alchemy of us and Kyle is now painting you a picture that you would never have seen on your own before. You're well, welcome. you might actually have seen it on the As Mentioned page, because we're going to put up a lot there. Well, that too. But uh, awesome. Thanks, Kyle. You bet. So, yes. So we have Warlock as this hybrid character, and the New Mutants whispering among themselves realize that, wait a minute, maybe there's a way well, to Well, and this. they are big. It's really clear that if the fight continues on this scale, they're going to level a city. 
So the new mutants realize maybe there's a way to end this before any more stuff gets destroyed. They whisper to Warlock, and moments later, his hybrid Gonagai character form changes color from black and yellow, which he's been with everything so far, to, you know, a full color, silver and red and blue form. And that's the end of the fight, because there's only one thing the impossible man can't do. Which is not be purple and green. And yeah, the ending here, I mean, it's actually kind of similar to the ending of Uncanny X-Men Annual number seven. Yeah, I've got the Impossible Man just sobbing on the couch as the kids gather in front of the TV to watch, you guessed it, Magnum P.I. The New Mutants are able to resolve things. The rivals shake hands. Impossible Man promises to set everything they knocked over back right. And then Magneto, their headmaster, comes in saying, so how was your day? And they're like, oh, it was totally cool. Nothing happened. Everything was fine. He settles down to watch TV, and it closes with him catching the coverage of the tennis match they interrupted in their costumes as the new mutants all try to sneak out the door behind him. And so, yeah, that's it. It's a really lightweight issue, but it's a really fun one. I mean, you know, if you're an X-Men fan that just goes for X-Men for the super serious character drama stuff, this is not going to be your jam. But if you like occasional fun, silly stuff amid all the doom and gloom, this is exactly that. So with that, you've got questions. Trailing Zeros asks on Tumblr, Whatever happened to Peter Corbeau? Based on what I could find on Dr. Internet, it seems like he just kind of faded into obscurity. Okay, first of all, around these parts, we refer to Peter Corbeau by his full name, which is Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau. Yes, who, if you've only been listening to the show recently when he hasn't been showing up, you may not know, is the most competent man in the Marvel Universe. He is the greatest human ever to live. He is a scientist and an astronaut and has a sweet hat and is a sailor and swam across the ocean once and he's going to take me to France and he says I'm his best friend. He is also, I believe, a two-time Nobel Prize winner, the head of StarCorps, and he is the namesake of the Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Awards for Excellence in Excellence, which are our house creative awards and way more important than the Eisners. Yes, uh, he was also the Hulk's roommate back in college, so there you go. So, Peter Corbeau, where has he been? Peter Corbeau for a long time. I mean, he's been showing up in cameos in the late 90s and early aughts. He is all over Uncanny X-Men First Class, which is the Bronze Age follow-up to the Silver Age X-Men First Class. And he popped up right before the end of the world on the verge of Secret Wars in Captain America and the Mighty Avengers. And there's a weird long-haired version of him that showed up as a figure of some import in the series Secret Wars Age of Apocalypse. But yeah, I mean, really all through the 90s and early 2000s, at which point he disappeared for the most part, he was just in, you know, an issue here, an issue there. There was a two-part Iron Man story involving Starcore and Stark Industries. There was a crossover into the Avengers, stuff like that. What we can take as read from this is that he was moving through the shadows and behind the scenes, doing the dedicated, vital, invisible work of holding the Marvel Universe together. Because that's that's what Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau does. Firehawk32 asks on Tumblr, You mentioned something you didn't like that I'd like you to expand on a bit. What powers and characters do you think are too, quote, cutesy, unquote, or, quote, obvious? Now, this question was in regards to a specific episode, and based on how Tumblr and our questions format works, we weren't sure exactly which one, so I may be answering a slightly different question, but hopefully it will be useful nonetheless. As far as powers that are sort of too specific, for me, that really falls under the category of almost object-specific or theme-specific powers. So, for instance, you know that character Axe from New Mutants that we don't like? His powers are that he's got an awesome axe, basically. Seriously, dude? Is that a power? I guess so. And then there's Silver Samurai, who focuses his power through his katana, you know, Silver Samurai katana. Like, things like that sort of seem to on the nose. Or, oh, even better, Slipstream from Extreme X-Men. Oh, God, I hate Slipstream. His deal is that he can surf on a surfboard through these sort of teleportation portals that he creates. 
I mean, I get that you sort of have to suspend your disbelief for mutant powers in general. I mean, most of them don't make any sense. But when they get this specific, my suspension of disbelief is just sort of broken. Where do you put Team America on that scale? Team America is not even on this scale because they are so bizarre and awesome that they just don't even have to obey any rules of storytelling or logic. Did they jump over the scale on their motorcycles? They did some sweet jumps over that scale on their motorcycles, all five of them, and then they all used their mutant powers to make a sixth motorcycle dude, and then that motorcycle dude jumped over it also. And that's the way it went down. Now, as for powers that are sort of too cutesy, I mean, that can really depend on the role of the character in question. So, for instance, the Impossible Man in this issue, his deal is that he can shapeshift into anything and use the concurrent powers of that thing, but he's got to be purple and green all the time. You know, that's ridiculous, but the whole point of the character is that he is ridiculous. He's an inherently comedic character. And so, while I wouldn't want to see anything like that for a regular member of the X-Men, for a character like the Impossible Man that only shows up every once in a while, okay. Yeah, I mean, powers that break genre are always really narratively risky. So powers that feel out of place in the world and comic that feel like they'd be better set in something that was for a different age range or something that was, you know, again, built very, very differently are ones that tend to bug me. And on a somewhat related note, another thing that really bothers me is when characters' names and powers overlap in dumb ways. So I think the worst offender I can think of at the moment is the old X-Force villain Forearm. He's got four arms, and his supervillain codename is Forearm, like, you know, the front part of your arm, which doesn't even make any sense, and it's sort of a pun, I guess, and I hate it. I really dislike Wolfsbane's powers. Really? I do, yeah. Because I feel like shapeshifting makes sense, but being able to shapeshift into one specific other species just seems really weird to me based on how mutations work. I guess so, but at the same time, you know, having her be a straight-up werewolf does interact with her heritage and her background in a lot of ways that I think do end up serving the story. So I guess that is a I good mean, point. I love the character, but I think her powers are pretty silly. Huh. I suppose so. So I guess, yeah, if you have dumb powers, but you do them right, then I think you totally earn a pass, at least from us. Before we proceed, a quick announcement. As we've mentioned on the blog, we are going to be guests at the upcoming Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival. It's on November 7th at Clark County Library in Las Vegas. This is an entirely free show. It's a library show, which means it's going to be extra awesome. You know how we feel about libraries. And at Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival, we are going to be recording our second ever live episode. If you're in the neighborhood and you're free on the 7th, come down and check us out. Again, this is an entirely free convention. It's got an amazing guest lineup, and uh, we hope we'll see you there. So in the meantime, our show is supported completely by our generous listeners, and one of the things that we offer listeners at a certain level of support is to be thanked on the air by various fictional characters and or metaphysical forces. So I'm going to turn this over to the angry Claremontian narrator. You thought you could have it all, Chris Morris. All those dreams you had cast aside when you picked up the weight of your responsibility. But little did you know that your dreams were no more than illusion, a web spun by Eric Fisher in his quest for ultimate power. And by the time you learned better, it was already too late. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out every Sunday on iTunes, on Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of additional content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, recaps, and much, much more. Our show, like we mentioned before, is totally listener-supported and is ad-free. 
and it's made possible by our generous Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become a Patreon subscriber and you're not already, please check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Before our next episode as well, the first episode of Secret Convergence on Infinite Podcasts is going to be debuting. That is happening on October 29th at Fan Bros Show. We'll post a link and be sure to follow the Secret Convergence on Twitter at SCOI Podcasts and on Tumblr at secretconvergence.tumblr.com. Meanwhile, next week, we'll be back here talking about mutant teenagers and why Colossus and Domino are our OTP. As we're joined by Dennis Hopeless, the writer of X-Men Season 1 and the upcoming volume of All New X-Men. 